Hello, welcome to Philosophize. In this episode, we're going to be talking about David Lynch's Dune, the 1984 film, not the new one. Um, obviously, I mean, it's not out for us. It's probably out by the time you listen to this. Uh, roll the music. So, Matt, this film is your choice. Tell us why you've chosen this film. Uh, I thought it'd be really good for our ratings to try and scab <laughs> off the uh, promotion of the uh, the release of the Villanova. Villanova. I looked up how to pronounce his name as well. Villeneuve. Villeneuve uh, film. Um, but no, more seriously, um, I'm really excited about that new film. And I watched the trailer, got excited, and I decided I wanted to talk about June. Uh, so we picked the uh, the older film. So this is a kind of way of you of you submerging yourself in the universe, ready for the Villeneuve film to arrive on our yeah. doorsteps and our screens. Exactly. Wonderful. That's great. I was quite happy you chose it for that reason as well. We finished last season with um, Villeneuve's arrival, you know, and this seems mm. like a kind of really weird kind of connection to this fi- to this film that we're going to look at now, which is following on from it. So, yeah, I think the yeah. choice is a great one. And I'd never, never seen it before. And perhaps we could talk a bit about Lynch when you get onto that. But I'd never seen this film until you suggested we look at it. Never had the opportunity, never thought about it. You know what I mean? And um, upon watching it, it's one that requires a couple of watches, like all like all of Lynch's films, but I loved it. Really did love it. Really? It gr- really? Because yeah, like, really when you watched the first it. time, you weren't, you weren't sure. So uh, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. I, I intellectually liked it, but um, I felt it one second watch, um, and I've watched it three times now. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's great. Caladan. And 19 light years beyond, beyond beneath lilacs. The training planet of the Mentats, the human computers. Noah Mentat by his red-stained lips. There, Arrakis. Spice mining. Carryalls lower the harvester to the sand and lift it off to safety when a worm attacks. Worms attack all rhythmic vibrations. Weather. See storms. No precipitation. Never one drop of rain on Arrakis. And the Harkonnens are near. There, Gidi Prime and the Baron Harkonnen, the enemy. The Baron Harkonnen has sworn to destroy House Atreides and steal the Ducal Signet Ring for himself. Somewhere in the middle of season two, we decided to stop doing our sort of three-minute um, summary of the film. However, I want to, you know, resurrect it just for this film, just to kind of get across how complicated it is. Um, so I have, a, I've, I've pre-written a short summary of June, uh, which is actually two pages long in my notebook. So in other um, words, you're facing the same problem Lynch was. Yeah, exactly. This is um, <laughs> So you're basically, you're the emperor's daughter at the moment, and you're going to give us that face to camera. There we go. I might even like edit over the Brian Eno music like, in, the, <laughs> uh, in the background while I'm doing this bit. So uh, the film is set tens of thousands of years into the future, where humanity has developed into a feudal space empire. 
The film focuses on an inter-house warfare between the just house Atreides and the evil Harkonnens, the result of generations-long uh, blood feud between the two, and the illegal intervention of the Emperor in this inter-house warfare. The Emperor offers the poorer house Atreides, the fiefdom of Arrakis, a harsh desert planet, the only source of the Spice Melange, a drug that increases lifespan and gives psychic abilities. Arrakis is home to the mysterious Fremen, the indigenous civilization descended from ancient space nomads who were in turn descended from even more ancient um, Arab Muslims. The Harkonnen and Imperial forces uh, depose the House Atreides, um, the nice Duke Leto, and kill him. However, his son and concubine manage to escape, and his son Paul, our protagonist, finds refuge among the Fremen who accept him as the fulfillment of ancient prophecy and as their messiah. Paul also happens to be the product of eugenics, a faction of female spice users called the Bene Gesserit, have over generations and generations attempted to breed a male with their own powers, who would be called the Kwisatz Haderach, the one who can be in many places, and who would be a superhuman. Paul, under the new name Muad'Dib, leads the Fremen in a war of uh, retaliation to retake the planet and depose the Emperor and the Harkonnens. He does this successfully, and then either through technology or space magic, it's not really clear in the film, <laughs> he makes it rain for the first time on Arrakis. And I just it's just such a complicated story. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I like the space magic bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And it's it's interesting that Villeneuve has did say that the only reason he was willing to do this film was that he would be able to do it in two films, because he he talks about how rich the um, and detailed the universe is in the novel, um, and um, I, th I think that's good because one of the things to me that really feels well, one of the truths that this film exposes, I think, is just how short it is. And, you know, it really, um, there was no chance of them being able to put together that particular book um, in just two hours. I think even not four yet, hours not, wouldn't have been but, enough. Um, the uh, just, just to give you some context, the audiobook is 21 hours long. <laughs> right, this okay. is a big book. Yeah. I didn't know that Villeneuve was going to be in two parts, actually. Well, it's not being greenlit yet. Um, oh. But he has said that he, there was a kind of a like an understanding that there would be the second film, and it isn't going to finish the book. It's going to end about halfway through the book. That was Ridley Scott's original plan was to do um, two films, but he had to drop out because unfortunately I thought it was uh, no. Jod so, Jodorowsky. So it starts with Jodorowsky, um, Alandro mm. jo Jodorowsky, um, and okay. there's another one who hadn't read the book but heard it was good, and mm. then read it and turned it into something. There's a great documentary from 2013, and he keeps talking about, I got rid of that for the book, and I added that. It's my film. I'm going to make it the way I want. And it just sounds mm. like a mad... It's just an excuse to make a mad, <laughs> trippy film for him. It then passed on to Ridley Scott, and he worked on a few scripts, and um, and he was still working with Geiger at the point at that point, out of um, from the Jobrowski project. And um, then he had to drop out because of family issues. But there was going to be two films. And, of course, then Scott keeps on Geiger and some of the crew that he was working on that were all part of the Jaborowski film, and um, they make Alien. I know, Thufer, I'm sitting with my back to the door. I heard you, Dr. Yui, and Gurney coming down the hall. Those sounds 
could be imitated. I'd know the difference. Yes. Perhaps he would at that. My father sent you to test me. Music, then? No music. I'm packing this for the crossing. Shield practice. Shield practice? Gurney, we had practice this morning. I'm not in the mood. Not in the mood. Mood's a thing for cattle and love play, not fighting. I'm sorry, Gurney. Not sorry enough. Another feature of the novel, um, which is, yeah, I've read it many times, and it's actually quite hard for me to watch the film detached from the novel. The two narratives sort of merge for me, so it's, it's been quite difficult to extract. But as well as sort of being quite long, it's also not a lot happens. Like, it's very light on plot. So there is a plot. Um, things do happen, and the you know the broad strokes are what ends up in the film. But most of the film is sorry, most of the novel is made up of these chapters, which sort of take up about four hours or so of interactions, like maybe once every two weeks. So you sort of there's a lot of time jumps in it, and there's a lot of focus on character on the world. And so I'd say it's like doubly difficult for them to turn it into a film because um, so much of it is in the thorough almost saturated level of detail that's going on very slow pace um, stuff. I don't blame uh, David Lynch for ultimately not being too happy with what happened because I think with the limitations set by the amount of time that he had, also the fact that um, compared to now, and why I'm quite hopeful about the new film is that filmmakers have got very good at making long films that are quite complicated. Um, Whereas, you know, I mean, this is only like a couple of years after Krull, isn't it? And um, Mm. it's just they're not, they're not, they haven't had as much practice as um, getting a really intricate, complicated plot as we have over the last like 15, 20 years with the Chris Nolan films and the and the Marvel things uh, where they're able to do quite a lot. So um, I have a lot of sympathy for this film and I really like it. And the thing I like the most about it, though, is the just the general aesthetic of it. Right. Yeah, that, I think there's a lot to talk about there, Matt. I, and I agree. I think the aesthetics of it are just superb. From costume to mise-en-scene. All right, let's let's look at it from a Lynchian perspective. I mean, I, just to say, you talked about the book, and I read the book when I was a kid, ages ago, and mm. you know, I've got kind of got two images from that book, and that was um, the the sandworm, Paul riding the sandworm. Uh, so yeah. sandworms are Paul, Paul and the sandworm together. They, that's about as much as I could remember, and the still suits, you know, with the water and yeah. all of that. That's about all I can remember till I saw the film. So for me, um, the film actually works really well. Um, it was interesting you talked about the, the format of the novel because those kind of that elliptical way of working, I think, is in the film. There are these big ellipses in the film, and and you know Lynch mm. goes on to make films that are very elliptical. One of the things Lynch likes playing with is time and temporality, and I think one of the ways in which that is done is through the costume of mise en scène. And it seemed to me that the Atreides people are kind of very Elizabethan looking. It's very Baroque kind of interiors, wood, mm. that kind of thing. The Harkonnen, you've got kind of late Victorian moving into cyberpunk kind of look and feel and industrial. That's a very good um, point. And finally, the Emperor is kind of like Weimar Republic kind of, you know, Eastern European kind of militaristic pre-First World War kind of look and feel with the uniforms and stuff. So you've got this kind of like temporal movement through the different mise-en-scenes. And 
And the difference between them is just startling from, as I say, from costume to, to the way in which the worlds are free. And then, of course, you've got, you've got the, this kind of more, um, you know, temporally distant world of the Fremen um, of Dune, of the Arrakis as well, which is kind of like a, a kind of militarized um, um, Afghanistan, so to speak. We are at the center yeah. of the, the center of everything, where all of these kind of powers are going to converge on at different times. And of course, Afghanistan is it's going through a horrible transformation at the moment. It's been through many, many yeah. horrible transformations in its time. And that temporal kind of moment that you've got with the costumes and the the mise-en-scenes of the different worlds and peoples, kind of all kind of like meets in in Arrakis, yeah, and it becomes a kind of atemporal or long, long battle, a long war, a long kind of period, almost atemporal in the way that they kind of converge on there. So that's what I loved. I thought that was very well thought out at the design stage. Yeah. No, absolutely. And um, I mean, what one thing that I think is really interesting about your allusion to the Weimar Republic, um, you know, being this sort of sort of historically seen as um, a not a very sort of not very strong republic that um, was dissolved when uh, the fascists came to power and the Nazis came to power, but in the books, um, uh, the next book has got a time jump and. Paul has led a massive, bloody crusade across the galaxy to establish his rule with many, 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 many deaths. And there's a scene in that where him and um, he's trying to um, give Stilgar some reading about battle tactics, and he actually refers him to Hitler as an example of someone who would be able to sort of effectively um, displace populations. So I, nice. I think, and I think this, yeah, no, it's the the, the books are much more morally complex uh, than this one, which is one of the things I do want to talk about when we get to it. But uh, and this, this is a big spoiler, so you know, just be careful. It's the only one you're getting. Uh, yeah, so like Paul is a Harkonnen, as much as he's an Atreides. Um, he's grand, the grandfather of the the Baron Harkonnen, and what you get in the uh, the later, the second book is. That he has acted as brutally as the Harkonnens did, and that kind of um, it is in the books as well. That kind of moral difference between the Atreides and the Harkonnens breaks down and sort of reveals that they are actually both very ruthless feudal aristocratic houses that are trying to maintain power for their own interests. Do you think that this this film tries to do a kind of Manchian good 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 and evil? I I I don't think it goes that far. I think so. I don't think it goes that far. I think or or at least or at least there is something else bubbling beneath it that puts that narrative in doubt and i i suppose the the moment to me was you know the way in which atreides takes over june and he's part of the plan yeah. willingly while knowing and you get that scene of them arriving on arrakis and they look as fascist as anyone else these, you know, mm. in their in the way in which their uniforms are created and the way in which they inhabit the space, even the film itself gives you signals that this the that it isn't a simple good versus evil here. Mm. Yeah, I think you've got a point. Then you kind of pushing me in the direction of um, something that had only just occurred to me when I was watching the film again today, um, which is this might be 
not a rewriting of the story in the book, but a, a writing of the story as from the point of view of the Atreides propaganda. <laughs> a clue to that is that Urulon is the narrator, um, the princess, um, who um, at the end of, I think it's implied at the end of the film, I don't know if it's actually stated, but Paul marries Urulon in order to become the emperor. And in the books, each chapter is sort of prefaced with a short quotation from a book that Irulan has written. And they've all got like these different things like, like um, songs of Muad'Dib, history of Muad'Dib, all of these different things. And basically, she's been writing tons and tons of books for use in, um, in schools to teach children about the, the greatness of, of their emperor and things like that. And it's propaganda. So the fact that Irulan is actually the our entry point into this world in the film, it could be that they're kind of intentionally rather than accidentally sort of simplifying the morality as though it's coming mm. from the point of view of the propagandists. It's interesting then to just flip it onto the other side and look at how the Harkonnens are portrayed, you know, particularly Baron mm-hmm. um, Harkonnen with his face just covered in kind of yeah. welts and warts and weeping kind of like sores. The, I suppose the most disturbing point of the film in this way, and it's been commented by certain critics, uh, I want to say Robin Wood, that it's... Okay. That it, there's a kind of homosexualization of the Harkonnen, of Baron Harkonnen, which is quite distressing in its way in which he's portrayed during the AIDS crisis and yeah. stuff like that. And that's in the book as well. Whatever the case, it's captured up by history, you know. So you've yeah. got this idea of the perspective, and this is why I'm talk- talking about this from after what you just said, of the perspective of this being written from the winning side, yeah. if you see what I mean. Yep, that the Baron is this this person, and this is how we portray him and talk about him, you know, in our film, in, you know, rubber stamped by House Atreides. The drug was time. Dr. Yui has been very valuable to us. What a pity. You must remain gagged. We can't let ourselves be swayed by your witch's voice now, can we? Leto, where are you? How simple this looked to us. Goodbye, Jessica. A goodbye to your sweet son. I want to spit once on your head. Just some spittle in your face. What a luxury. So, um, obviously, we've already been talking about the nature of this film as an adaptation, and I think that um, because of the nature of this film, as well as my own subjective experience, it's difficult not to talk about it in the context of its adaptation, because I think a lot of the creative decisions have come out of how do we transform X into Y. Um, I don't think it's true of all adaptation films, but I think of this one, it's worth going through. And there were just four things I wanted to tell you that have been changed from the book to the film and see see what your kind of reaction to that is. Oh, is is this almost a test? Not a test, um, but just I think I think it's going to put new light on some of these things in the film. Okay, that's good. That's good. Just to mention, though, for me, a novel 
is just the first draft of a script for the film. So I'm looking at this, if you like, from the film backwards. You're looking at it from the novel forwards. So let's meet in the middle somewhere. And I'll get in Scotland before you. <laughs> um, okay, so first of the four things. The weirding way um, in the film, this is portrayed as um, some... Uh, as combat through sound um, sort of technology, sort of using these devices, they call them weirding modules with like a microphone on them and you make a sound and it causes an extremely powerful, destructive eruption of force. Um, Mm -hmm. And at the end of the film, it's revealed that Paul has become able to produce that effect without using the module. Um, In the book, the weirding way is just a form of martial arts. The sound stuff is entirely invented for the film. And uh, the weirding way, which isn't mentioned that much, it's just um, so Jessica, um, Paul's mother, who is a Benny Jesuit, one of the um, out of this sort of organization that has um, bred Paul over generations through selective breeding. Um, she reveals herself to the Fremen as someone who can fight with the weirding way, and all it means is a really sort of biologized idea of how to fight someone where you know exactly which muscle and which nerve to hit. A bit like um, the ending of like Kill Bill, where the, the thing with Ooh, the, where she does the five-point star, whatever yeah. it is. Or, um, good reference, mate. Yeah, so that, there's, there's one transformation that occurred for the film. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that. There's the bit where they're, where he's training his, the first 100. Yeah. And he does a little bit of a speech on this, and he talks about the sound of motion, but he says it comes from thought. He says this mm. comes from thought and sound and motion. And that, to me, really kind of dovetailed with the whole evolution of these spice navigators over 4,000 years, their 4,000-year evolution, and how they can fold mm. space and this idea of thought. And you, some of the most startling images in the film yep, are, yeah. are in relation to that. And those two things, I thought, really gelled quite well because – what you get the sense of is that all of these people have evolved from the same DNA off the human planet that's spread out across the system. Yeah. yeah? But these, these yeah. navigators, these kind of like sperm people, they look like big – at first I was thinking of them slugs, but they almost look like sperm traveling through a womb. A kind of, they're a mm. kind of like mega sperm. And they were kind of like – they're moving with sound and thought and, and all of that kind of then – is picked up by Paul in his own way. So I think they've really thought about that, that aspect of the film, you know? And I never put those two together, um, which makes the next one interesting because that folding space thing is also an invention for the film. Um, so in the film, what the spice does for the navigators, who you don't get a description for in the first book, no one knows what they look like, but it's rumored that they have mutated. And what the spice allows them to do is to see into the future. So they already have the ability to travel faster than light. It's just they can't navigate faster than light um, until they get the spice, which allows them to um, sort of avoid obstacles and things like that. So instead of this sort of folding of space idea, what the navigators are able to do is to just see in the future what's going to hit them. And so they can sort of swerve and things like that. So I'd want to pull that back. So we've talked about Mm. the weirding way and the evolution of these mega sperm navigators (laughs) that can fold space. And that kind of comes back to these kind of like, it's psychological. uh, There's kind of like a psychologicalizing of space Mm. going on. Oh, Um, that's good. That's in the trips. And I think 
to me, uh, we, you started talking about spice early on, and I kind of mentioned Afghanistan. And this book was written, mm. what, 65? I mean, to me, the drug influence is front and center, you know, thematically yes. um, and visually across this film. And the idea that you take that there's this one place where you've got this spice that the the the, um, the princess at the very beginning, lots of princesses in this, but the princess at the beginning um, says something along the lines of you mentioned extends life, um, extends consciousness, and is vital for space travel by folding space without movement. And these people have yeah. evolved through four thousand years to be able to do it by taking the spice. And Paul's always nipping at that spice. And he's always having yeah. these kind of like visions. And they're almost like, like the telling bit is when they first lands in the desert with his mum. And um, yeah. he just touches a rock and he has a trip. He has a flashback, yeah? So it's, <laughs> it's almost like someone that's been taking drugs and, you know, they hear a bit of music and suddenly they have a flashback. And, and you have these images of moons and hands, and at one moment the second moon has almost like an image of a hand on it. And these images mm. are just, some are explained, some are not explained. From the point of view of watching the film, what's the importance of the second moon? What's the importance of the hand? You get the idea of water, this kind of dropping of water, you know, a drop landing on Still Lake and the ripples coming out. And all of these images are just like the, the drug experience that was talked about in the 60s where we could open the doors of perception. Yeah, it's been extended to say, no, drugs will allow us to act differently within the world, within the universe, and indeed affect the universe. These aren't just visual delusions anymore. Mm. Yep. But this drug here can give us visual manipulations. Mentat Fighter DeRees. Message for Mentat Fighter DeRees. The Baron is impatient for Leto's reply. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of sapu that thoughts acquire speed. The lips acquire stains. The stains become a warning. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of sapu that thoughts acquire speed. The lips acquire stains. The stains become a warning. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. Okay, building on that again, David. Um, so the Quidat Sadarak. In the film, it's explicitly described as a superhuman. Basically, Paul has been um, bred to have a particular sensitivity to the, to the spice, which you can control in a certain way and gain extra powers. That That is what's in the book as well. However, the powers are very different. Uh, we saw and talked about already the things that Paul can do uh, in the film. The idea in the book, and this is a bit problematic, actually, is that uh, the Bene Gesserit, the school um, tradition of people who have been using the spice for all of this time, um, what they use the spice for, I think they have got some future sense, whereas the, the spacing guild has got a very powerful future sense. But they also look in the past, and um, the idea is it comes through genetic memory. Um, so this idea that encoded through your ancestors in the DNA, you can get access to things that happened in the past, um, which becomes more important in the later books. And the idea is that um, they can only go through the female memories. However, they want to build a man who has the same sort of adaptation, and it's harder for a man to be able to do it. Most of the men who tried to do it have died. That's a line that's in the film as well. Mm -hmm. But the man will be able to look into both female and male pasts and into the future. There is an, a slight allusion to that in the film where when Paul takes the um, the water of life, um, 
yeah. uh, which is the thing where all of the worms are sort of like gathered around in a circle and stuff like that. You hear the Reverend Mother say, that's the place we can't go. Oh, nicely noticed. I missed that. And I think that's an interest because the connections when he takes the water of life there, he bleeds, his mother bleeds, his little mm. baby sister bleeds, kind of idea of some kind of connection going on. He knows in the earlier trip, he knows that his mother's pregnant with a baby. Yeah. And I suppose it's another choice. I don't know when we'd get to say it. What, what, one thing I really liked about the film, and I think this is, this is going to be possibly perverse to most people that like cinema. I loved the use of multiple voiceovers for thoughts in this film. And I think mm. it worked incredibly well because it was overloaded and handed to so many characters. You know, if it had just been one character, a bit of, it would have been a bit mm. clumsy. But it's, it's handed to so many characters, it becomes, if you like, a, I'm surprised this hasn't been developed more in filmmaking. Um, I can see why there's, there's a resistance to it. But to me, this was a, I believe this is a choice that came quite late in the editing process when they realised they had to get it down to two hours. And, but I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I mean, what you might presume, and what I kind of presumed a bit, knowing that um, the you know it had to be cut down a lot from what Lynch had, in, had, had originally filmed, and that uh, there were lots of edits towards the end in which producers were involved and stuff like that, it made me think maybe it's a bit like Blade Runner, where in the cinematic cut they add all of these monologues and stuff like that, which um, uh, really Scott didn't want, and in the uh, in the director's cut there's a lot less of that going on. Because they thought, oh, this is a film that's hard to follow. But when I was doing a little bit of reading into the production of it, um, it seems that Lynch was actually very heavily involved in the cutting down. It wasn't that he was like kicked out of the room or anything like that. He was, he was involved in getting it to the point that it was. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. He worked on all the kind of condensation scenes that kind of tie yeah. things together and refilm stuff. So that's I, I agree. He re-envisaged it as he went along. And I think we need to to remember that aspect it's only at the point when they do the three-hour cut that he says no mm. take my name off the film call me alan smithy um on the, on the, as the director <laughs> you know which is the classic one uh that's used in hollywood when a director uh, takes their name off a film because the producers got involved mm. that didn't happen with the released film We'll salvage what we can. But I can tell you, dear God, for the father, nothing. For the father, nothing. Did you really think you could bear the Kwisat Zadarak, the universe's super being? How dare you? My greatest student and my greatest disappointment. I would say in the film, um, which we've kind of got a working reading that it's this propaganda um, account of what happened, uh, Paul is very much uh, the hero of many faces. Uh, he uh, goes through trials and he's a, he's a strong protagonist and he's achieving something and the film ends with that achievement at the very end. Yeah. Whereas in the book, he's much more of a tragic hero. Throughout the film as well, and it just, just goes further in the book. You get told in the very beginning what's going to happen. You know, for the father, nothing. You know, Leto is going to die. He had that prophecy. Um, 
also you're told very early on, and this is in the book as well, you're told very early on that there is a traitor. In the book, you actually know who the traitor is, um, Dr. Yui, who's meant to have this conditioning that makes it impossible for him to possibly ever betray uh, someone. You know all of these things, and you know that it's going to happen, and then that ultimately in the end of the first act leads to the death of the father and uh, Paul and Jessica going into exile. In the book, you get this extra thing of, you know, so Paul's main power is less than being able to break Sting apart with a single thought <laughs> and, and word, is about being able to see into the future. And he immediately starts becoming concerned because he sees he's on a path to cause a galactic jihad in which he lays waste to um, so many cultures in order to establish this new monolithic religion with him as the god emperor and his descendants leading off into the future of millennia. And he privately, he doesn't talk to anyone about it, but he privately, and you get through his sort of his own self-narration, is is trying to stop that from happening. But there's points at which um, you know, he's sort of he's sort of saying to himself, if I the only way I could stop this now is if I kill everyone in this room, including me. Um, but he's still trying to sort of tweak it away from this uh, catastrophe of um of the, of this um, galactic crusade with him mm. as the figurehead of it and what happens at the very end when he becomes the emperor and all the way through from the, that middle of the book when Paul starts doing this it's like yeah no maybe I can avoid it maybe I can avoid it and that it just ends on a really sad note of Paul realizing that he's failed and by getting to this point he's now trapped in the timeline in which there is going to be a crusade whether he survives or not the kind of like you mentioned tragedy, kind of like an almost Oedipus figure here. Exactly. Yeah, he's um, he knows his fate and tries to avoid his fate, and then ultimately the fate still still happens. And anyway. everything he does to avoid his fate just gets him deeper into yeah. his fate. Yeah, yeah. It's very it's very Greek tragic. This film is more heroic in that way. It's got that kind of mm. you know at the very beginning you mentioned the trials. We've talked when we were talking about Kroll back in the day. I mean, this this film, yeah. in a sense, Krull, Krull is more like the June you're talking about now than this June, because if you remember at the end mm. of Krull, they have a little baby and they talk about him going on to rule the universe. That sounds to yeah. me very <laughs> influenced by June, if nothing else, you know. Um, here, you're right. Um, I, I believe there was, a, Lynch was even working on a second script um, for the June Messiah book when it all got cancelled because the film didn't do too well. It's setting it up for that. But there's no hint of that in this film, which I think is good, right? Because imagine yeah. if there was a second film made and that happened. Whoa, how cool would that be? Anyway, but here, you're right. It's more a kind of hero with a thousand faces, as you, as you were kind of alluding to. That He goes through these trials. You've even got kind of like um, ones that resonate with Star Wars, you know, fighting the little robots and all of this, that, and the other. So you've got you've got that kind of element of him being of him being cultivated both militarily mm. and psychologically by his mother and and those those Ben Gesserit people and you know the militarist Ben Gesserit Ben Gesserit um, <laughs> sisterhood uh, being cultivated in these different ways sometimes with a little bit of resistance from that side and at least yeah. anyway. But yeah, no, I think this is a this is a, a film of the rise of a hero. What I find really interesting then, philosophically about this point, and it'd be interesting to see what you think is the difference here. So when yeah. I was when I was 
watching the film, it seemed to me very Nietzschean. Yeah, and I imagine the book might be very Nietzschean. You've mentioned the mention of superhumans, super beings, and mm. the idea of of this idea of what is breeding. That's a big uh, thing in later yeah. Nietzsche. So you could do the whole overhuman reading here, the breeding read, and I suppose where these both dovetail for me is will to power. The idea of will to power, and mm. when, particularly in Beyond Good and Evil, when Nietzsche's talking about. He introduces will to power, if you like, at the end of his discussion of drives and what is will. Mm. And the he, he's trying to dissolve one of the many attempts to dissolve the difference between freedom and determinism, these two different narratives that 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 are that are intractable, seemingly. But for Nietzsche, mm. as as for several other philosophers, then we don't need to go into all that, you know, the solution's quite simple. Yep. Um, for Nietzsche, you know, both of them, both of these narratives are down the line. All we've got are strong and weak wills. And it's not an individualistic notion for him. It's more that we are composed of drives, um, hundreds of thousands of souls of drives within us. And they are always ordering mm. each other. And one is, you know, we are driven by our drives. We're not conscious beings ordering our drives. Our drives order us. And all of our other drives kind of form around those. So you've got this idea of, of a, a drive kind of like coming to the fore and ordering all of the other drives. And for, and for Nietzsche, this, this is scalable at every level. It happens within us. Mm. It happens within groups. It happens within species. It happens across, you know, the whole of life, so to speak. You know, all the way down, all the way up, will to power. Now, what is this strong and weak will? You know, how does that operate when you have – if you – that's a psychological kind of reading there. What happens when you encounter the universe and the idea of is there determinism or is there freedom? Well, for, for Nietzsche, mm. the idea there would be that the material world is so forceful, is not absolutely deterministic, but is so forceful, um, and it comes through our evolution, through our, through our ways of being in the world, through our culture, that it takes a really strong will to turn away and turn from a way in which you're being pushed. And I often think of it like, you know, the individual in this sense is like a, a little boat with a, with a sail caught in a storm, yeah, and trying mm. to survive, trying to, to get across an ocean. Yeah, because it's not going to change the ocean or the, its impact on the ocean is going to be absolutely minimal, i.e. life and matter and all of that. Can you navigate your way through this storm? And that, to me, is you know, mm. a good image for, for Nietzsche's will to power. Now, it seems to me from the film that Paul manages to navigate through the film. Yeah, be yes. And the film is the storm. Yep. And, yes. you know, and he manages to navigate his way through the film. What you're saying to me is, in the books, he can't navigate through the storm. The storm is driving him. I think this only comes up in maybe the third or the fourth book. But there's an idea that, um, I don't think he uses the word drive, but there's an idea that what's actually going on is not the story of any set of individuals, but the human races as a whole having become stagnated and trying to reinvent itself and reorganize it in itself in a different way under a different type of political organization. And this is a, and then the books end up becoming, although I haven't read the last one. The books, as far as I, I can tell, they end up becoming this sort of multi, not just generational, but multi-millennia story mm. 
of a transformation of humans going from one cultural organization to another. Awesome. I think you get a sense of that in the film. Uh, it, it, I think it, so too. It struck me that there's a bit early on where they, where they describe the different worlds and you get these kind of computer screens coming up and then there's that kind of montage sequence a bit later on, you know, really towards yeah. the end, so to speak. Which uh, let's not worry about the directorial choices and when they were produced and all yeah, this, yeah. that, and the other. Because we've got the film that we've got, and it did. Even with those moments of when the the narrator kind of intervenes in the plot, you know, you're getting kind of like small anecdotes, and then it stands back and looks at this wider kind of tapestry. So you, you there mm-hmm. are moments when you're plunging deep into the thoughts of Paul, of Jessica, various different people. You're really close to them. And then the film just stands back at a real distance level. And that in itself, the idea of distance is a, is a big Nietzschean theme as well. Yep. The idea, the only mm. way to, to see something is to stand back and see it at a real distance. You don't, you know, it's that it's classic line, you know, who knows what a revolution is while you're in it. You only understand a revolution once it's over. Muad'Dib had become the hand of God, fulfilling the Fremen prophecy. Where there was war, Muad'Dib would now bring peace. Where there was hatred, Muad'Dib would bring love. To lead the people to true freedom and to change the face of Arrakis. We Fremen have a saying. God created Arrakis to train the faithful. One cannot go against the word of God. I mean, like this film isn't a failure to make a film of the book. You know, even though an ardent fan might be disappointed if they'd already read the book and had read it a lot of times and then went in and found what what they got is sort of very simplified. I think there's a lot of like active interpretive decisions to sort of tell it in a way which, at the one hand, makes it possible to tell it in a film because I really do not. I mean, that like, you know, again, twenty one hours the audiobook. Um, it would not be possible to um, do it exactly as how it is in the film, even practically, but also manages to sort of bend with it, sort of riff with it and do something slightly different that's in the spirit of the book, even though it can't actually do the book. Yeah, you started off by saying, you know, it's an impossible book to film, but you've ended up now going, kind of inverting that and going, you know, you have to make your choices. And, do it. and I agree, I think that's what filmic adaptations are in the same way um, that a painter might paint a scene from the Bible or from something else, you know? Uh, You can't transfer everything in, but the way in which a hand is pointing and the way in which people are looking, you know, tells a story in a different format and you have to choose the scene you're going to show. And I think that's what a filmmaker does with, with, with adaptation. As I say, the book is a script before it's a film. A thumper. Thumper. We're not alone. 
So Dave, was there anything that um, we didn't get around to that you would like to uh, talk about? Unfortunately, David Lynch couldn't put a section like this at the end of the film. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Doing a little bit cursory research on this, I found out that Hayao Miyazaki's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind is anime from 1984, the same year as June, this film. Okay was based on the June novels. It's um, oh, wow. it's very, very different. It's very, very different. Mm. And you remember we were talking uh, last season when we did Ghost in the Shell, we had a couple, I, I suggested a few animes to you and I let you choose. Uh, this has made me want to return to, in, in a later season, to the Miyazaki's Nausicaa Valley of the Wind because it's one of my favourite animes. It's right at the beginning of Miyazaki's career. It's the one that made him as a filmmaker and an animator. It's just beautiful. It's really clever. And it now it'd be really interesting, now I know this, to look at it through that lens. And indeed, with your knowledge of the whole kind of Dune franchise, which I'm sure you're just at the beginning of re-encountering, you know, to look at that film yeah. again through that. So this is a note for us to return to Miyazaki's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind at some point. So, Matt, what about you? You got any little uh, last-minute things you just want us to think about? Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to get on a soapbox. Go on. An imaginary soapbox. My hopes are up for this new film. And the, the thing that I'm hoping for is that the film, the new film, being longer, being a bit more modern, is able to capture a more ensemble uh, narrative. I mean, a bit like when we were talking with Jeff about... Um, Villeneuve's other film. Arrival, yeah, that's really good. Where, where we get that collective thing. I'm really hoping that they do that. And because a lot of um, a lot of the characters kind of have to fade into the background because of how prominent Paul becomes for them at this film as that hero with a thousand faces, which we've discussed a theory where it's because of it's like the propaganda version or, or it's a mythological version and so on. Uh, but in particular, I just really hope that they do um, Jessica, uh, Paul's mother character, better. She's this very strong... Um, and powerful to use the cliche, but incredibly um, self-resilient and independent, almost magical with the abilities that she's got. And there's a scene in the film where sort of they've just arrived in the desert, and and the worm's there, and then it sort of disappears, and then um, Jessica's sort of like tearful and sort of screaming, and sort of like, "Why? Well, yeah. Why did it go away?" And she's completely breaking down. That scene isn't in the book at all. The thing with the worms in the scene, but there isn't a breakdown between either of them at that point. The bit that's comparable in the book, it's actually Paul who loses it. Um, so Paul, he's 15. He's been trained in all of these different ways. But And there's a bit where um, um, Jessica nearly dies. She falls into like a sand, um, so it's like a sand avalanche, whatever that would be, sandfall, I don't know. Uh, a dune collapses on top of them. A bit like what happened to David Lynch. <laughs> and she gets covered. Um, Paul manages to get her out. But in the whole process, they realize that they've lost their pack, which has got all of their um, the things that's going to keep them alive. And he starts going on a complete tantrum and sulking and start, just gets really nihilistic. So that's it. We're dead. We're dead. And it's Jessica who snaps him back and just says, is this how you were trained? You know, with that thing of the voice, which mm. in the film, I understand why they did it is this kind of like uh, overdubbed, affected voicing. But in the in the... In the book, it's all about like a careful manipulation of tone in order to get a certain like visceral interpolation reaction out of people. But it's it is Jessica who is the rock. It's Jessica's the reason why Paul's alive, not the other way around. In the book, um, he's still a bit of a mess, and he's not yet himself. So I just really hope that they do at least do Jessica a lot better in the new film. Mm-hmm. 